So we're living in a weird time for Canadian real estate. We've gone from a decade of declining interest rates and deflation to the fastest rise in interest rates on a percentage basis that anyone alive has seen. While people are calling for a recession, the Canadian economy has thus far been chugging along really strong. And on the housing front, we're starting to hear stories of multiple offers again. So what's going on? Ben Rabideau is a Canadian financial analyst and researcher known for his expertise in the Canadian housing market. He's the founder and president of North Cove Advisors, a market research firm that focuses on the Canadian housing market, consumer credit, and related macro trends, as well as a publication called Edge Realty Analytics, an industry insider-only real estate market intelligence report that our team has found to be very helpful when trying to understand what's going on in the market. If you're in the real estate industry, you can find out more at edgeanalytics.ca. But today, I'm very excited to talk with him to get a preview of his latest thinking and insights on what's going on in Canadian real estate and the economy in general. So Ben, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure. So you're so good at focusing on what's most important. And I know you brought a few slides to help us build a picture of where we're at. Maybe to help kick us off, what are a few things that you're looking at right now? Well, it's an interesting time in housing. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that are unexpected in this market right now. If we'd gone back a year ago and we'd said, okay, mortgage rates are going to go, let's just take variable for a moment. Variable rates are going to go from a low of 1.2 up to 6%. Um, if you told people that a year ago, I think we would have expected a lot more pain in this market. I think we would have expected um, a, a much higher increase in delinquencies, in consumer insolvencies. You just expect a lot more stress in the system. And I think also we would expect, um, or, or we would not expect to see a, a, a fairly decent bounce in sales, uh, at least as it's shaping up the spring. So, you know, th that's been surprising to me. And I know we're going to get into some of the specifics there. And then the other thing that I think most people would have been surprised at is if you had said, okay, we're going to have a year of some of the weakest housing activity in decades. And we're still going to have inventory at the end of that year that's well below normal, which is where we are today. Right? I think that would have been a surprise too. And so it's just a lot of things happening. It's, it's a dynamic market. It's very interesting. It's not at all how I would have, ex how I would have drawn it out uh, as shit, you know, is happening given how rates have moved. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the 10,000 foot level. I know there's a lot of specifics you want to get into, so I'm happy to go, you know, wherever you want to go with this. Well, maybe let's start with interest rates. Um, you know, that's, that's really been the big change uh, over the last little while here. Um, we've got the next Bank of Canada rate announcement coming up, I think next week on April 12th. Um, you kind of alluded to it in the last 12 months, we've seen overnight rates skyrocket from 0.25, it's basically zero, where they sat from I think March of 21 and then in March, 2022, they started uh, bringing them back up and now they're up to 4.5%. Um, I think January was the last raise uh, where they went up a quarter point and then they, they more, most recently they paused in March. Um, prior to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the weakness that's been exposed in the US banking system, it seemed like the US was on a trajectory for more rate rises this year, which would have put some pressure on the Canadian dollar. If Canada didn't rise with it, that would have been uh, would not have been good for uh, Canadian inflation. Uh, it would have made our imports more expensive and our exports more attractive. Um, but in response to this weakness in the States, the U.S. Fed raised less than expected uh, at 25 basis points. They're expected to be in the 50 to 75 range. And uh, now uh, they're expected to be more accommodating throughout the rest of this year. So what are you expecting the Bank of Canada to focus on next week? You know, what do you think they're looking at? And where do you think rates are headed for Canada this year and, and into next? Yes, a lot, there's a lot there. And that, and that is kind of the, the million-dollar question. I think any discussion around where we think pricing is going to go, where we think resale activity is going to go, it all sort of hinges on what's going to happen with interest rates. Um, let, let me start by first saying what I don't think is going to happen. I know there's a lot of optimism that we are going to see an imminent decline in interest rates. Um, and, and, and a lot of people, very anecdotally, at least when I'm speaking with real estate professionals, they've got a lot of clients that are either holding off, um, selling it at home or, or, um, you know, are just broadly expecting that we're going to see rates fall precipitously in the next, I don't know, six months. 
and that that's going to reignite the housing market. And I just think that's the wrong way to think about it. Um, I have a very different view on that. I think um, if we have a, a run-of-the-mill recession, um, I don't think the bank can is going to lose any sleep over that. And I think it's important to make the distinction between a, a typical recession and a financial crisis, right? So in a recession, it's typically a situation where a bunch of businesses have, have expanded pro, um, productive capacity too quickly. Maybe people have gotten a little bit too indebted. And you end up in a situation where um, the economy slows. Those businesses have to shed some of their employers or employment. And um, it just kind of feeds on itself for a little bit. You get this, you know, a few quarters of negative economic growth. You get a rise in unemployment. That's kind of your run-of-the-mill recession. Now, it, importantly, in that situation credit worthy borrowers can still access credit right so businesses can still get bank lines uh, maybe not at the same terms that they could before but they can still access credit and, and solid borrowers on the household side can still access credit okay that's a recession now i don't believe if we, if we see the the unemployment rate go from a record low of five percent where it's sitting right now up to six or six and a half percent do i think the bank can is going to lose sleep over that absolutely not i think that's a, in fact that's the intended outcome of these interest rate hikes so let's be very clear on that. so if we see a couple hundred thousand jobs lost in the next six months man you know i, I don't I, I don't mean to like you know be dismissive of the reality that that's going to suck for some people but that's that's the intended consequence of these, mm -hmm. these rate hikes mm -hmm. um and so I don't think you're going to see this immediate decline in interest rates. Okay. Now I would contrast that with a true financial crisis. And in a financial crisis, the plumbing of the financial system is impaired. It's broken in some way. And, and in that situation, now creditworthy borrowers cannot access capital. Right. Um, and, and so what we saw in March was a lot of concerns that uh, the U.S. was kind of careening towards a true financial crisis. You started to see bank failures. You saw Silicon Valley Bank fail. You saw a handful of others, small regional banks fail. And, um, and, and that was what caused the dramatic repricing in, in bond yield, both in Canada and the U.S. Okay? And so um, my view is we're not going to have a financial crisis in Canada. We will have a typical run-of-the-mill recession. Um, and... People should brace for higher mortgage rates for longer. I do not believe we're going back to 1.2% variable. I don't think you're going to see that again for a generation, if not longer. We're in a structurally higher inflation regime, driven by a number of factors that are now at play that weren't there previously. And we can talk about that, but you know, more expensive energy, uh, global demographics that are no longer as favorable to cheap labor onshoring of production as opposed to you know being able to use this kind of geographic labor arbitrage to reduce pricing all of those things are changing and they're changing right now and 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 to me that's indicative of a a, a higher inflationary regime and so look what that means is i think that um as opposed to inflation averaging one one and a half percent maybe over the next decade it averages two to three or maybe even three and a half four percent that doesn't sound like a lot, but what it means for bond yields, just as an example, is now all of a sudden you have a five-year bond yield that's no longer one and a half or two percent; it's three and a half, four percent, which means mortgage rates are going to consistently be in the fours or fives. And I think that's what we're facing. And so, you know, I'm just not of the view that we're 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 going to see this imminent decline in rates the moment that we see softness in the economy. And that seems to be the kind of the prevailing notion out there right now. And I, I just think it's wrong. And you can see that notion in the yield curve, I think. Um, what what do you make of um, what do you make of M two and and just money supply in general? Um, I, I don't know if we have a, a, a graph that's been I, I can send prepared you, I can for this. You would, yeah. It, it's it's tricky. The waters are pretty muddied right now because there was so much expansion in the money supply coming out of the recession, the COVID downturn. That it's you're you're kind you kind of have these really bizarre comparables, right? Where you know a year ago we were seeing money supply, or I guess more like a year and a half ago we were seeing money supply that was growing like 40 percent a year, and we really never seen that before. And so now you're starting to lap those comparables, and so it makes the declines, and, and they are declining. If you look at base money, like I was just looking at this the other day, but like you know M1 as sort of a proxy for consumer savings, right, um, is declining at the fastest rate on record, and so. 
you know, there's signs there when you look at that, that yeah, there's, there's um, potentially some problems for the economy going forward. It's, it's not my preferred measure. I mean, I think to me, when I think about where the economy is probably going, I mean, I would, I've got a couple slides on this, but I mean, I prefer to look at even something like the OECD's composite leading indicator, right? Which um, has a very good long-term track record of predicting where GDP is going. It's in deeply recessionary territory. Okay. And, and similarly, if you look, you mentioned the yield curve. I've got a chart on the yield curve there. There's the 10 to bond spread for those on, who are your, um, your viewers who are a little more in the weeds. This is uh, the difference between um, short-term rates and longer-term rates. Okay. And so normally, uh, as you go out on the yield curve, you, you have higher rates. And right now, it's, it's flipped. It's deeply negative. And, and that's a, a strong indicator of, of a recession. And so Look, I'm in the view we're probably going to get a recession in uh, 2023, maybe early 2024. Um, when that hits, you may see the Bank of Canada cut rates, maybe 100 basis points, whatever. You're, not, you're just not going back to zero unless you, you really are in a true financial emergency. And I think that a lot of Canadians have sort of anchored off these low rates. And there's a lot of recency bias. Like we, we sort of have gotten used to this view that like zero rates are normal and Maybe they are in a, in a disinflationary or deflationary or just kind of flat inflation environment, which is kind of what we had over the last, really last 10, 15 years. It's, it's probably not the environment that we're in now. And so I just think people need to get used to a very different rate regime and, um, and, and, and probably one that's going to be here for years, years to come. Do you think it's fair to say that, because what's really interesting about all this is that obviously COVID's dominated everybody's life over the last couple of years and um, everybody can point to it. It happened for everybody at the same time. Um, but it, a lot of these trends are things that that are, seem to be happening or would have happened independent of COVID. They've obviously been exacerbated by COVID or, or sped up or, or et cetera. But um, do you think that we'd find ourselves in a, in a situation um, where we'd be finding higher rates if it weren't for COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think so. I, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's um, exacerbated or sort of accelerated some of the trends that were already there. And so again, going back to some of the key issues, like again, the, the global demographics, where is the cheap labor globally, right? It used to be in China. It used to be in Eastern Europe. It, it just isn't, the demographics aren't there. There's no cheap labor there anymore, right? So that, that's an issue. You cannot offshore your production at much cheaper cost. Right. The, the energy issue. And I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the end of hydrocarbons and oil. And I just don't I don't buy any of that. And I, what I see is we've underinvested in traditional hydrocarbons and we're probably going to have expensive oil for a while. And we're seeing that, you know, right now the, the Biden administration is doing their best to try to drive oil prices down. And we're sitting here today. It's 80 dollars right for for a barrel of oil. Um, I mean, that 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 was coming anyways, I think. Right. And then the geopolitical mm -hmm. tensions, like who wants their supply chain running through China right now? It's just we're, we're in a very different geopolitical world. And so bringing those supply chains home is is inflationary. Right. So you just you kind of lost some of those disinflationary forces. And um, and now we're just in a different regime. Those would have happened, I think, without COVID, but but it definitely brought forward the timeline. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, and, and on inflation in particular, it seems that expectations for inflation are such an important part of driving inflation that, you know, maybe maybe that would have, that component might have taken a little longer to, to get kicked off if it weren't for all the supply chain disruptions and other things that came out of COVID. Well, taking it back to mortgage rates, you know, we've seen, um, well, well, historically, my understanding is that in Canada, fixed rate mortgages have been more common than variable rates. But during the pandemic, we had these ultra low variable rate mortgages. There's a big shift towards uh, variable rates. And then now rates have gone up really fast. Um, you know, I think there's some news uh, over the last couple of months about um, trigger rates, um, a term that I think a lot of people hadn't heard of before. Um, you know, first question, what impact did we see from Canadians hitting their trigger rates? Well, maybe just for context, let's just let's just throw up a chart on what discounted mortgage rates look like. And so, um, you know, I'm looking at one here, variable rates kind of hit a low of, on a deep discounted basis, like 1.1, 1.2. And they kind of held there for 2021 for basically the entire year and into early 22. And now they're up pushing 6%. Okay. And now what that did to the composition of mortgage debt at standing is very interesting. 
I'm going to jump ahead here. So what we saw during that period is that variable mortgage rates accounted for over half of new mortgage originations in 2021, right? And so you had a huge skew into variable rate mortgages during that year. So much so that we went from, if you look at like the, the stock of debt outstanding, variable rate mortgages typically are kind of 15 to 20% of all mortgage debt outstanding in Canada. But because you had those incredibly low rates and this huge push into variable, we actually had a big increase in, in variable, the share of variable debt outstanding. And, it, and it's now, as of today, it's about 35%. Now, that should imply that a lot of Canadians are feeling the impact of these high rates from Bank of Canada, because variable, of course, is, is, a, is a straight feature from the prime rate set by the Bank of Canada. The issue is that in Canada, about 80% of our variable rate mortgages have static payments, which is a strange concept. And when I'm talking to my American clients, like this really warps their mind. They're like, how do you have a variable mortgage but have constant payments, right? So the mechanics is just simply that um, the bank will extend the amortization to try to keep your mortgage payments constant. And that only works for so long. You get to a point where they've extended the amortization. In other words, they're putting less and less towards your principal and more and more towards, towards interest. You get to the point where eventually the, the mortgage payment no longer covers even the interest component. And then you've technically hit your trigger rate. Now, different banks are handling that differently. In the case of, as an example, CIBC, they're allowing some of their borrowers to negatively amortize their mortgages, which means that the, the deficiency in the interest payments every month is simply being added to the mortgage balance. So their outstanding debt is growing every month. Okay. That's 20% of their book. I mean, that's a, that's quite a thing. Now, um, what this has done is it sort of masked the impact of this rising rates for Canadians, but it's only delayed the impact. So now what we've done is rather than these borrowers face the higher payments today, they're going to have to face them when those loans renew. And, and the way that the, law, the, the regulations are currently is when those loans renew, they have to revert back to their original amortization period. So now you have to amortize a larger mortgage balance over a shorter time period at higher rates. So we've sort of delayed the pain today and we've made it worse potentially in 2025, 2026, when a lot of those loans start to renew. So that's it. That's a concern. And, and you know, the interesting thing is when you look at the household debt service ratio, right, which is the share of household income that's going to service principal and interest payments, it's not as high as you might expect. So I've got a chart on this. And um, given where rates are, you would think that we should be at a record high because we know that households in Canada are highly indebted. Um, but because of this dynamic that we're discussing, these static payment variables, um, that debt service ratio is lower than it otherwise would be. Now, if you roll these interest rates forward and you let this debt roll, and, and you let, because it takes a while for higher rates to flow through to households. When you model that out, we are going to hit record high debt service ratios later this year or early 2024. And, and, and that's where I think the rubber's going to start to hit the road. One more thought on that, and I do have a chart on it. If you look at, one way to visualize this, this dynamic of static payment variables and this idea that the banks are extending amortization and putting less and less payment towards the principal. When you see it on a chart, it's really quite striking. So the chart, that I'm showing here is a principal repayment every quarter on an annualized basis. You can see that when COVID-19 hit, we all remember they had these mortgage payment deferral programs where if you ran into financial problems, they just let you defer your mortgage. Um, and that was a big deal. Like there was a lot of, a lot of ink spilled over that during COVID downturn. And you can see it on the chart here. It's that little blip in principal repayment rating second quarter of 2020. Now, what we see today is that the decline in principal repayments is already larger than what we saw during COVID. Now, payments that are deferred today just simply mean higher payments in the future, right? And, and that's what we have to keep in mind is this has not solved the fundamental problem. It's only delayed it. So I, I am concerned about that structure in the mortgage market. It's kind of a, I don't want to use the word time bomb, but it, it's, a, it's, it's delayed pain, I guess we could call it. And, and it is coming if rates hold here. It's delayed pain, and in the case of the uh, the variable rate mortgages where the amortization has to reset, it's accruing a little bit of pain. <laughs> no, that's a so, great way to put it. You're absolutely right. You're 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 accelerating. You're um, what's the right? Well, I guess yeah. You're you're compounding pain down. You're the road. compounding some yeah. pain, <laughs> yeah, that you're gonna have to pay later. So 
So that's really interesting. I mean, my, my second question was going to be around fixed rates and, you know, what that's going to look like because um, we've got, you know, some amount of the pain being felt today by the, the share of uh, variable rate mortgage holders. Um, obviously, some of them are able to push that off and defer and compound the pain. What percentage are, are uh, keeping the fixed payments of the var variable rate mortgages? About 80%. Yeah, it's, so actually, it's, yeah, it's 80%. So the, the two main banks in Canada that have true floating payment variables are, are uh, Scotia and National Bank. And so I've kind of had a view that like, you're probably going to get an early indicator of what the future stress might look at like if you just watch what's happening in their, their mortgage book. And again, getting back to kind of what we said at the beginning, like everything's kind of surprising in Canada. Um, their mortgage book is still performing pretty well, like very well. Um, I am of the view that it's probably still a little early. Uh, Canadians are very resourceful. And even when they hit the wall financially, they find ways to tread water for six or 12 months. Um, but that's where you're going to want to watch first for any signs of stress. Well, BNS I mean, it strikes me, you know, we, we raise rates to try to uh, rein in credit from the entire system. And one of the most important uh, places, the rubber hits the road there, is with consumers, or especially when we're thinking about CPI in particular, with consumers and and affecting their spending. And the way it does that is by making the, their payments on their credit go up. But if what you're saying is that 80% of the variable rate mortgage holders, their payments are not uh, uh, changing, then uh, it, it seems like a pretty ineffective mechanism to actually affect uh, consumers. Like it's, a, it's such a small percentage that are actually getting hit by this. And it also does beg the question, when's all of this going to come home? And when are we going to, when are we going to see that? And if rates don't come down, um, you know, like what, what are the tools that the Bank of Canada and, and, and the banks have to, to get out of this? Well, I think, um, so when I model it out, I, normally you sort of expect, okay, about 25% of mortgages in Canada renew every year, roughly, right? Because if you look at it, you know, you've got about 45% or five-year fixed. 35% are these variable, which are typically five-year terms. And then you've got the remainder, kind of the other 20% are, are shorter term, you know, one to four-year fixed. And so on a, like a weighted basis, the, the average uh, term length is about four years. So you'd, you'd assume about 25% are renewing every year. The yeah. problem is that when rates got super low in 2021, a lot of people refinanced, right? And so you kind of had this lumpy origination profile. And so rather than having like 25% of the loans renew this year, it's actually much lower than a normal year. We've only had by my math, like 15, maybe 20%. So in other words, only about a fifth of mortgage borrowers have even felt higher rates in any meaningful way so far. So, so when you ask like, what are the, the tools of Bank Canada? Has, they don't need to do anything, right? Rates at this level, it will, will be an issue for a number of Canadians. And it's absolutely going to curtail spending. The issue is just, leaving it, giving it time to work through the system, right? The other thing you have to remember is that there's still a lot of floating rate debt out there that's non-mortgage, right? So in particular, HELOCs, there's a lot of HELOC debt in Canada. On a per capita basis, it's about three times what there is in the U.S. And that's all floating, right? And so, you know, for a lot of people there, especially people who maybe borrowed off a HELOC to, as a down payment on a second property, those payments have doubled. Right. That's a real material move. The other thing and, and, and what I'm more concerned about right now, when you think about like where are the imminent pinch points, um, the non-prime market, uh, I do worry about a little bit. And, and so in particular, when we think about like the institutional B-side lending space, typically you're talking one year mortgages and um, they, they renew every year. And these are typically borrowers that um, haven't been able to get traditional bank financing for whatever reason, self-employed, perhaps slightly credit impaired, et cetera. Uh, the issue there is if you look at, I do track those B lending rates. Um, if you look at where they were a year ago, they're about three and a half percent. And today they're about seven and a half to eight percent on average. And I have to think that there's some portion of those borrowers where that's just simply an unworkable number, right? To go from three and a half a year ago and then today you're renewing at eight. I just have to think that's going to cause some pain in that segment, right? Now, a year or two ago, for those borrowers that ran into problems, you know, the equity was still going up. House prices were going up. There was plenty of liquidity in the private lending market, which is kind of the next tier below that B space, which I, I know you understand very well. Um, 
you know, there were some lenders that would do rescue financing and maybe would take out those B loans when they're slightly distressed. And I just, I don't see that today. I think that, that that's, it's fundamentally a very different uh, space. And so, you know, I'm more worried about that segment in the near term. And I think the issues for prime borrowers are going to be more a 24, 25, 26 story. Assuming rolls are still high, right? And, and they may not be for all we know, but I, I suspect they'll be higher than people think. Well, yeah. So in summary so far, we've got this pressure of uh, a whole number of different factors that are causing inflation, which is going to push rates to stay higher. At the same time, we've got these affordability concerns and some of this uh, deferred and compounding pain that's going to come back to roost that's likely to uh, lead to uh, more accommodating potentially more accommodating policy, but those two have to reconcile somewhere. And it's just, it's unlikely to be, I guess, if I'm paraphrasing you uh, well, it, it's it's unlikely that we're going to go back to the rates that we saw over the last decade. We're, we're still going to be in some sort of elevated, uh, relatively elevated rate environment. Yeah, that's my take. I, I, I very strongly, but again, notwithstanding the risk of a financial crisis, you know, financial crisis, sure. everything's off the table, but a typical run in the middle recession, we're not going back to zero. Right. And you also have to just keep well, in mind, like central banks live and die off their credibility, right? It's, it's incredibly important to them. And when you think about how much credibility the bank can have lost, I mean, we, we all remember Tiff Macklem standing up there and saying, if you want to get a mortgage, if you need, you can rest assured the rates are going to stay low for a long time. That was like 21. And a year later, he's jamming rates higher, right? Like they clearly waited too long to raise rates. Uh, it's one of those situations where once bitten, twice shy. Right? They're just not going to make mm-hmm. that mistake. And so I think a simple way to think about it is because you had persistent deflationary forces for so long, the bias from the, the Bank of Canada was to be too easy, too loose, as opposed to too tight. Right? If you're going to make a mistake mm-hmm. one way or the other, you'd rather be too loose than too tight. And today it's different. I think that's flipped completely. And I think now the, the, the bias is going to be to be too tight as opposed to too loose because they've seen the fallout of being too loose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, maybe let's let's shift gears here to talk about supply a little bit. Um, last year, the government announced a plan to welcome half a million immigrants per year by 2025. So you know, over the three years, one and a half million immigrants. But a few weeks ago, we learned uh, that last year, Canada's population actually grew by more than a million people in that one year for the first time ever. And according to the government news release, 96% of that growth came from international uh, migration to Canada. I think we've done some work to try to understand uh, how to break that number down a bit better. Um, you know, first I need to be clear. I think immigration is a part of what makes Canada great, and and you know the fact that we have some serious labor shortages in Canada and and our economy needs it. Um, but I'm also proud to say that you know 130,000 of those immigrants were U- Ukrainian refugees that were displaced by the war in Ukraine, um, and we've been lead- a leading place of refuge for people fleeing. Uh, crisis in Afghanistan and earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, et cetera. Um, but it's notable just under the Ukrainian program uh, alone, uh, we still have another 470,000 Ukrainian applications that have been approved under that initiative. Um, and the government's actually extended that program further. The pace of immigration seems like it's very unlikely to let up. And the current pace of 2.7% that we just learned that this, this is very new the last couple of weeks makes us the fastest growing country in the G7, according to Statistics Canada. And if you keep that pace up, they say that our population will actually double in 26 years. I mean, to me, these seems like really crazy numbers. Um, what I can't help but thinking about, given my focus on Canadian real estate, is where are all these people going to live? Um, and then, so I'm curious from your perspective, how do you, how do you think immigration affects uh, housing prices? And how do you, you know, what do you, how do you think about supply? Okay, so there's a lot there. I have a, a slightly different take on what's driving immigration and, and what's driving overall population numbers. So first of all, I'd absolutely echo what you're saying. I, I think we are all, you know, very much, most Canadians are very much in favor of robust immigration numbers. And, and you, you can see that, like, well, here, let me pull up a chart. When you look at the composition of population growth, so first off, actually, let's look at the, the year-over-year population growth. There's what you referenced, the annual change population. We just saw 1.05 million on a year-over-year basis last quarter. We've never seen anything like that. Now, when you think about 
population growth. There's sort of three main buckets and it's important to break it out in those three buckets so you can actually understand what's happening under the surface. Okay, and so the three main buckets, the first one is what we call natural increases, like the number of Canadians that died minus the number of Canadians that are born. So that's kind of like what we think about as kind of organic population growth. And in this chart here on the right, like that's that gray bar. Right. And you can see it's just it keeps grinding lower like the, we are not yeah. creating enough new Canadians on our own. And so that's why anybody who is like, you know, opposed to immigration, you need to show them that chart because that's, you know, like, what does that look like if you roll those trends? We're going to disappear. Right. Right. So so that's not sustainable. So you need solid immigration. Full stop. Now, yeah, what what I would push back against a little bit on the policy front. So we've got this target of kind of 500,000 permanent residents. Okay. And that's not, that's admissions, right? So that's this blue line that you see here. This is net international migration and the, on a permanent basis. Uh, and so, you know, you admit 500,000 in, in any given year. There are some people that leave Canada for other places. And so on a net basis, it kind of averages to kind of 400, 450,000. And that's that blue line. And you can see that. And, and interestingly, that blue line actually ticked down last quarter a little bit, okay, just based on hmm more Canadians leaving. Now look at what did all the heavy lifting. It's this orange line, which is non-permanent residents. And this is, to, I think, what everyone's missing, okay? We don't have any targets or quotas or, or even, um, you know, restrictions really around non-permanent residents. And, and I think that's a policy error, okay? Because, um, for example, what we've seen in the last number of years is post-secondary institutions have dramatically increased the number of international students. Not opposed to that. I'm not. I think it's, you know, we want to attract the best and the brightest. That's fine. But to me, the question should be, should that be subject to the same sort of targets or caps that you have on permanent residence migration, right? And it's not right now. If, if a university wants to double their international student enrollment, they can just do it. Right. And, and to me, that's that's not smart thinking because that's a lot of rental demand, just as one example. Mm -hmm. And so where are you going to put everybody is a simple question. And so now that's one component of non-permanent resident growth. But the other is, to your point, you mentioned about the strong labor market. We need temporary workers to fill these job vacancies. And so what you see in this chart is we added of that one point zero five million over six hundred thousand were non-permanent residents. And so. Now, who were they? If we look at who it was, it was a pile of temporary workers. And, and very much, I'll, I'll tell you what I think happened. We had a lot of job vacancies in the country. We had a million job vacancies in the back half of 2022. The Bank of Canada was terrified about wage price spirals. They didn't want wages to start spiking, which would feed back into price, and which would make their inflation issue a, a real problem. So what did they do? They, they talked to the feds and the feds said, okay, that's no problem. We'll, we'll open the floodgates and any business that needs workers will just bring them in and we will sort of suppress wages that way. And so you had this huge inflow of temporary workers. Now, it's interesting that if you look at the, the, the labor force survey, the jobs data for December and January, you might remember we had like, it was 10 times the number of jobs created that were expected, right? So in other words, we like blew out the estimates by an order of magnitude. And everyone was shocked. Mm -hmm. It was like, what is going on? Where are all these jobs coming from? This is what it was. It was backfilling the vacant positions using temporary workers. That's all fine and good. Fine. Okay. We can debate the merits of that, whatever. But here's where it matters. Because you said that you don't think, you don't see anything that would cause population growth to let up. I actually disagree with that. And so the reason is, if we look at that cohort, okay, see, let's, just, let's just focus on temporary workers. What happens in a recession? What happens if the unemployment rate goes from five to six or six and a half percent, right? Well, all of a sudden now, at least historically, we see outflows. Every recession, we see non-permanent residents, uh, that, that share actually declines, right? Temporary workers, they're here on a temporary basis. When the labor market weakens, they leave. And we see that in every recession. And so now you can very easily envision a scenario where you know, we, we had temporary workers adding 600,000 to the population. Maybe next year they're going to add 100,000. Maybe they subtract 100,000, right? And so now all of a sudden you go from a million to 400,000 population growth. Still a very solid number, right? But, but, a, but not a million. So a million to me mm -hmm. is a one-off. It's not sustainable. 
you're going to see that number slow dramatically in a recession for because of this exact dynamic that we're talking about. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. No, no, actually, I, no, I know there's a lot more to talk because you've mentioned, what does this all mean for housing supply? Look, the, yeah. the, the, the immediate issue is in the rental space. And so in 2022, we saw apartment vacancies nationally fall to 20 year lows. We saw the strongest purpose-built rental increases in on record going back to as far as we have data from CMHC. So that's kind of the first order fallout from, from because it, it shows up immediately in rental demand. Okay. Now, you know, for the folks who are in the rental market already, a really tight rental market, it just causes a lot of problems, causes a lot of headaches. Some portion of those renters just say, screw it. I'm just, I'd be better off buying. Right. So it, a tight rental market forces some renters into the ownership pool as well. And, and I think that's kind of what we saw now. Over the longer term, unquestionably, this is positive for housing demand and for house prices. Okay, and, and, and especially, like, I think you can make the case that there's a chart in here looking at single-family housing completions compared to population growth over time. And, and you can certainly make the argument that we have underbuilt single-family over the last decade. And I don't see any signs that that's changing. And so I know that the housing downturn right now, it's not a particularly strong market for single family, although, you know, signs that it's coming back. Um, you roll these trends forward three, four years. If we continue to see strong population growth, if housing starts, continue to be weak, you're going to end up another supply crisis when things start to normalize. And I don't know when that's going to be, but something has to give here. These, you cannot have, if, if we agree that we're all in favor of solid immigration, then the question is, well, what are you going to do about that? Where are we going to put everybody? And, and that's mm -hmm. kind of the real dilemma here. And there's, there's a number of policy measures that can move the needle here and there, but there's no like silver bullet, right? It's just going to be a, we, we need a lot of changes if we're going to accommodate that level of population growth. I mean, if we're seeing such an increase in, in people that need housing, what do you think is driving the, the fall in, in single family housing starts? Well, we don't have to overthink that. It's just simply the fact the the new housing market has been abysmally slow, right? So if you look at, as an example, new home sales, which typically is pre-construction, you look at new home sales in Toronto, they're down about 80% year over year so far to start 2023. And that's on top of some really abysmal numbers the back half of 2022. So if you're a developer right now, like you don't really want to be launching a development into this weak market, you'd, you'd be better off just biding your time and letting the market stabilize. And, and also, I think there's a lot of issues around closing right now for single family. If you bought a pre-construction single family a year, year and a half ago that's completing today, you're going to have issues with that home appraising at your purchase price. There's, there's all sorts of issues. And so this is one of those things where it's like there's this temporary weakness in the market. And, and, and I think that sets the stage for supply issues down the road. So, and I guess the weakness that the, the developers are experiencing right now, trying to sell their existing projects, I, I would imagine is driven by affordability. They'd probably tie back to um, down payment requirements and and interest rates. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting problem. You, you know, in Vancouver, uh, the Squamish First Nation is building over six thousand units on just over ten acres of central land in Kitsilano, and they're able to do this and move quickly because they're not subject to the same municipal rules that your average developer would be. Now, I was recently helping my dad with renovating a house, and he had to wait over nine months to get his permits, which just blew my mind. And new home developers, from what I understand, have it even worse. For a long time, our politicians have been talking about the urgency to address housing affordability. People disagree on how to get there. Um, but it just it, it, it seems to me that the difficulty to build housing and, um, you know, the, the uh, resistance to densification is is um is a, is potentially a big issue here and um it sounds like politicians in in at least in bc and ontario are starting to agree um you know in, in ontario we had the the more homes built faster act that was announced in bc there's the the housing supply act that was promoted as among other things removing barriers but um in the case of bc also comes with a substantial amount of additional intervention things like the rental market to um you know limit rent increases and that sort of thing um trying to make everybody happy all at the same time, which I, I, I can understand why you try to do that. But is it going to work? Is it, you know, I guess, 
question is, what do you make of existing government initiatives to remove barriers and build more supply? I, like, are, are they doing the right things? Are they doing enough? And, and is this the right thing to focus on? Well, it's unquestionably the right thing to focus on. So I'm, I'm not an expert in that space, um, but I've spoken to enough developers to have a view that it's absolutely an issue. And um, look, I think there's a lot of little things that they can do. I mean, we had a, a great task force here in Ontario that put forward a number of recommendations for trying to kind of expedite supply. And some of it's just pretty sensible. I mean, at, at a high level, we have this issue where the federal government is setting immigration targets. But the ability or the willingness to provide the supply rests with the municipalities. And specifically, it rests with municipal councillors who have to vote on these developments while their neighbors are shouting in their ear about, oh, I don't want that five-story condo development going in over there and ruining my sunlight or, or whatever, right? Or ruining my sight lines. And, and, and they have to listen to that. And that's a real issue. And so there's a recognition that you need to incentivize. It's like a carrot or stick approach. Tie the, the federal funding to the, the approvals or whatever it might be. And so I'm encouraged that you're starting to see a recognition that that's where the pinch point is, that those are sort of the gatekeepers. And municipal, municipalities are just, I hate to say it, they just, they got to get on board with this. They need to find a, the wherewithal to basically tell the NIMBY crowd to take a hike. Um, and so, you know, whether that takes form of um, tying the funding to those, to, to, to kind of the approvals. I also think there's a lot, again, there's a lot of little things that can move the needle there, right? So, you know, if, if, you are opposed to a development, you can appeal that and you can tie that up in, in, in uh, different uh, you know, uh, appeals for a long time. And to me, that's just, that's just kind of, there needs to be skin on the game on both sides. And, and I think one of the proposals that made a lot of sense, mm -hmm. like if you want to oppose a new development, that's fine, but you have to put up kind of a, a surety or a bond or some sort of a, a payment to, to a to appeal that. And if you lose the appeal, that money goes to the developers to offset some of their legal costs. And so now it forces people to have skin in the game because right now you can just do these nuisance lawsuits and tackle in tens of thousands of dollars and years of time for these developers just trying to wade through all this crap. And it's unnecessary, right? So there's that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you mm -hmm. know, I think there's also some issues around, I think we have land that is, that is zoned for redevelopment, is, is in the municipal plans to be redeveloped and it's just being is being held in land banks and i think that's i don't know how big a problem that is but to me that just makes sense like let's if, if that's supposed to be developed and people are sitting on it tax them tax them and get them to develop mm -hmm. it right but I, you're right there's a lot of gate, gatekeeper issues that need to be resolved and and i'm encouraged that at least there's a recognition that that's where the pinch point is and it's it feels like there's some progress being made there we'll, we'll see well, okay, let me uh, ask you about housing prices, everybody's favorite topic. Um, you know, we were talking about builders. W do you look at builders and, and new homes and, and the prices? Do, do you think of them as being a leading indicator of where prices are going? Not necessarily. There's a lot of idiosyncratic issues there. Like, you, you know, right now, I think what we're going to see in the next year, like I'm, I think there's going to be more issues in the new housing market than in the resale market in the next little while, right? And so part of that is that Look, if you if you bought a pre-construction condo, let's say, and this is not going to be your principal residence. This was either going to be an investment or you're planning on assigning it, flipping it before closing. The way that rates have gone and the way, they, the way they've moved on you, like that's going to be a real problem now for some component of the population that, you know, that's going to be forced to close on those. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're going to see distressed selling. Like if you own a condo and you live in it, chances are you don't have to like fire sale it. Right. But if you have a pre-construction con and you have to close on it and you're look, staring down the barrel of this gun and like maybe you just want to get rid of that thing. Right. And, and so you can see more distress in the pre-construction kind of new housing market than, than necessarily in the resale. So I don't know how much you can read, read through. But now in terms of like what we're actually seeing, again, kind of getting back to like nothing being as we expected. You've got a chart here on, on supply and I, I think it's worth showing. Right. Nationally. Resale inventory is up nationally, you know, 40% year over year. There's 40% more listings on the MLS than there was at this time last year. That sounds like a lot. But when you look at seasonally adjusted listings across time, we're still not even back to kind of normal levels. We're still only about two thirds of normal levels in Canada, which is kind of surprising, right? We're, we're a year into a very steep downturn and there's still not a lot of inventory. And in fact, in the last two months, we're starting to see inventory roll over. 
And so that's a good sign that I think unless something changes, we're probably going to see prices start to stabilize. Um, I, I don't know how you get around it. Now, in terms of where we are right now in the, in the house price cycle, we've seen prices, if you look at the MLS house price index, the cumulative decline from peak is about 16%. That is already the worst cumulative decline nationally since at least the 1970s. Now, I know you'll have some listeners or some viewers that will look at that and they'll be like, well, wait a minute, I was in Toronto in the late 80s and prices fell a heck of a lot more than 60%. That's true. But in the late 1980s, that was very much a Toronto-centered downturn and you saw steep price declines, 25 30% in Toronto. But the rest of the country was fine. And, there, and you didn't really see major downturns everywhere else. It was synchronized the same way this is. And so when you, when you look nationally, this is the steepest price decline from peak in, you know, called 40 years. Uh, and so it's been a real move, right? And so, um, you know, I, th I think we're probably getting close to the point where you're going to see prices stabilize just because the supply situation is, uh, is still relatively tight. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. It's nothing's made sense. And who knows what it's going to look like going forward. So you mentioned Toronto getting hit harder back in the 80s. Um, you know, we often talk about the Canadian real estate market as being one thing, but it obviously is a bunch of little sub markets. Um, I'm curious, you know, one, one of the things that happened during the pandemic was some of the outlying areas that didn't get as much attention were, um, were getting a lot of attention because uh, I guess on a relative basis, they were more affordable, but also probably because people just wanted to get out of the core. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's right. So, so what are you, what are you seeing in terms of core versus outlying areas and primary versus second homes? Um, what's, uh, are, are things all kind of moving the same or, or is there some difference? No, there? there's huge differences there. It's, it's actually almost the mirror opposite of what we saw during COVID. So you're seeing the, the steepest price declines are in the suburbs. Um, the core is still holding up relatively well. Um, what, what's interesting, and actually there's some great research from the Bank of Canada that basically showed that as you create these kind of concentric rings away from the downtown core in, in the big cities in Canada, you get higher and higher price appreciation during the pandemic. And, and I think if you redrew those rings, but showing price declines, they would look exactly the same. The further away you go from the downtown core is where things are getting hit the hardest. That's particularly true in Ontario. Um, now, what's, what's really interesting to me, so you asked about like second homes. So one of the big unanswered questions is like how recreational properties are going to fare in a recession, right? Because traditionally, recreational markets in Canada are hyper-cyclical, right? They boom when the economy is solid, and then they, they, they fall much further in the broad market when the economy weakens. And that's because it's like, it's a super discretionary purchase. Nobody ever has to buy a cottage, right? But you have to have somewhere to live. And, and if you run into mm -hmm. financial problems, you're never going to sell your house. You may sell your cottage if you have that. And so consequently, you, you tend to see these exaggerated moves. Now, the big question right now is, has work from home fundamentally changed that dynamic and has better rural internet, right? Uh, the Starlinks, for example. Have those fundamentally mm -hmm. altered the demand profile for recreational property? And I think it's too soon to tell, but, but from what I'm seeing, recreational property is holding up better than I would have expected. Um, mm -hmm. But that said, we really have not seen any real economic fallout yet, right? The unemployment rate's still near record lows. You know, people still have lots of cash, even though rates are high, there's lots of savings. Like you're, it's still, I would say it's still too early to, to make any definitive statements on any of those, those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, well, last question. Um, you know, it seems like a recession could be likely. Um, but this last year and a bit has also seen the definition of recession be debated. Um, you know, unemployment is, is still low. How are we going to know we're in a, in a recession? Is it going to be the common definition of two quarters of, of negative growth? Is it going to, or, or does unemployment have a role to play in, in meeting this test? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think most, most people are of the view that having two quarters of negative economic growth is not enough to classify as a recession, right? So if you may recall, in 2015, we had the oil downturn and nationally we saw a couple quarters of GDP growth. I, 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 they may have been revised higher, but I think initially they reported two negative quarters. 
And so we had a recession in kind of 2015 when Alberta rolled over. Uh, it, it didn't mean anything for Ontario, right? And anything, if anything, it was actually positive because you had this influx of workers out of Alberta when the economy rolled over there and it tightened the rental market and had all these kind of positive benefits. Um, you know, lower gas prices that, that help support consumption. So you're right. It's not enough to just say, oh, you had a couple of quarters of negative growth. Um, you do need the fallout in the employment market, right? And, and, and so, you know, how do you know going to know we're in a recession? Well, you're going to start seeing the unemployment rate start to rise. Now, now what's important is the unemployment rate is a lagging indicator, right? So it, it, don't fall into the trap of looking at the unemployment rate and going, wow, it's at a record low. The economy is booming. It's the last thing to start to weaken. And, and it's going to be even more pronounced this cycle, right? Because if you think about it, we just came through a period where it was incredibly difficult to find labor, right? So if you're an employer, the last thing you want to do is start cutting workers. So, so you're going to take a hit to your margins. Maybe you'll see about, you know, maybe reducing some hours here and there. Like you're going to do everything you can to hold workers uh, because it was so hard to find them for so long. And so it may even take longer than normal to actually see that show up in the employment numbers. But make no mistake, rates at these levels will flow through to the labor market. Right? Things will start to break. Um, it just takes maybe longer than we thought. And part of that's related to you know, a lot of pandemic-related savings. Um, part of it's related to the fact that, as we discussed, a lot of consumers are still insulated from these higher rates, but that changes over time. Um, but just give it time. Right? Rates at these levels, I think, are... It's really difficult to envision Canada not ending up in some form of a, a recession with rates at these levels. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Uh, really appreciate all your insights. Where can people find out more about you and, and Edge uh, Realty Analytics? Sure. Um, edgeanalytics.ca. You can check us out if you're in the real estate profession. Uh, you can sign up. It's exclusive for real estate professionals. It's, um, as you know, it's it's research reports, it's it's quarterly conference calls, it's marketing infographics. Um, if you're an institutional investor, uh, you can reach out to me at northcove.net. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Ravidu. Um Generally fairly easy to get a hold of. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. My pleasure.